I think we're going to have to grow up if we don't grow up, and I don't see much sign of it at the moment in either the West or in China, I think we're going to blow up the world. So that, in a way, the book is a pian to praise to democracy and capitalism, but it's equally as much a pian to, to stepping back, uh, a plea for stepping back and saying, what we're fighting about isn't important enough to blow up the world. It's we've got to find a way of managing our societies internally and our relations with one another externally, which creates a better and more decent world. This was the great aspiration after the Second World War of leaders like uh, Roosevelt. And one of the reasons I sort of return to him in this book is because I think that's a great aspiration. And I don't think it's naive. I think it's naive to think that we can manage a traditional world of traditional international power relations among the current superpowers without risking complete destruction. Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm editor-in-chief of EconView and your host today, Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today for the 42nd episode of The Hale Report is Martin Wolf, economics commentator for the Financial Times and widely recognized by the likes of Larry Summers, Paul Krugman, and Ken Rogoff as the most influential financial journalist in the world. He is also the author of a new book with an intriguing title, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. It is a deeply thoughtful exploration of some ideas that might be troubling, including whether the economic and political system we presently enjoy is sustainable. Welcome, Martin. So good to see you. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a great pleasure. Well, let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. He was a great friend of my husband, David, which is how I first met him. Reading his newest book, I was moved by his personal story in the preface, and I have a question about that, which I'm going to save for the very end of this podcast. But to begin, as our listeners know, I always ask my guests about the path they took along the way to what they're doing today. Martin, how did you first become interested in economics? As a student at Oxford, was there a professor who inspired you, or was it something else? Well, it wasn't quite like that. When I went up to Oxford, which it was, believe it or not, in 1965, so a very long time ago, a different world, um, I went up as what we call a classicist, which is meant that I spent my time reading Latin and Greek, uh, the original languages. So I like to joke that I'm one of the few non-Greek economists who've read Homer in Greek. Now, um, after uh, about a year or so, I began to realize I wanted to do something else. Our course was divided into two parts, and the first part ended nearly two years into the course. And I, at, at that time, already developed, indeed, had done so previously as a teenager, a passionate interest in politics. Uh, the, the 60s, as 
you know, and uh, uh, listeners might recall, was a period of political turmoil uh, in America, very much so, uh, Vietnam and all that, and in Europe. Uh, 1968 was a big thing. So I was really interested in politics. There were many debates. And I decided that one couldn't understand politics without understanding economics. So I switched to study politics, philosophy, and economics and just see how it went, think how economics went, because I hadn't really got much preparation for it. But I found I really enjoyed it. I liked the rigor. I liked the the, the, the need to confront data, like the, the, the attempt to construct models. So I then decided, let's go for it a little bit more. And I, after I did reasonably well um, as an undergraduate, I did a graduate degree at Oxford. And then by chance, almost, I was encouraged to apply to the World Bank, uh, the major development agency of the West. And I was accepted. So I then spent 10 years on development. And these stages brought me to a sort of passionate engagement with global economics and uh, and with the subject of economics. When you were with the World Bank, uh, were you living in Washington at that time? I was. We spent uh, exactly 10 years of our lives. Uh, at that stage, I was very newly married and our, our sons were born there. And, and I lived in Washington. Not only did I live in Washington at that stage, but I lived through Watergate. I lived uh, through uh, uh, the overthrow of Richard Nixon, uh, the great inflation. It was a very turbulent time in Washington. And I had the privileged ringside seat. Uh, I bought a television in order to watch the hearings on Nixon, which I found very, very impressive, by the way, and a striking contrast with what has been happening more recently in certain yes. ways. Yes. And, uh, and I was both moved and troubled. Of course, at that time, I should add that, very important. Uh, this was the era of very considerable racial turbulence in uh, the United States um, with uh, really big riots in a number of cities. And I became very, very aware living in Washington at that time of the racial um, dimension of American politics. So I, that really explains your understanding of Amer of American politics, Martin. I didn't realize you were there for 10 years before. I'd think if I hadn't lived there for 10 years and been so fascinated and traveled, I've, I've traveled in almost every state of the union, though not quite, um, uh, but perhaps 35 or so of them. Uh, did most of that in, in actually in 66 when I traveled all over the country. Yes, I, I would not claim for a moment to have an expertise genuine expertise about America, but I lived for, there for 10 years. And maybe there are some advantages from some points of view in having an outsider's eye. Exactly. With your new book, you mentioned that it took you five years to write it. What inspired you to do it? That over this five years, it was also a very eventful time. A lot happened as you as you did it. Did you reconsider some of your original ideas as you went along during this period? Um, what was your reason for writing it? That's, I think, a very good question. So uh, I wrote a book immediately before this one. It would explain it. It was called The Shifts and the Shocks, and it was about the financial crisis. And it, it was obvious to me when, as soon as the financial crisis occurred, 
uh, the financial crisis of 2008, roughly. I mean, it's obviously a much bigger event than that. That this was a, a momentous event and called into question a lot that had happened in previous years. Uh, raised questions about the way our economies were working and above all, the way the financial system was working. So th though I had to sort that out. But it became obvious by 2013, 14, 15, but dramatically so in 2016, that this was having very significant political effects or at least exacerbating existing political problems. For me, the catalysts were the arrival of Donald Trump as uh, um, the candidate for president of the Republican Party, which was an extraordinary event. We take it for granted now, but... <laughs> Previously, it had been Mitt Romney. I mean, from Mitt Romney to Donald Trump is a pretty staggering thing. And, of course, in the same time, very important for us, uh, the Conservative Party was riven over uh, Brexit leaving the EU. And to our great surprise, the Brexiters won the referendum. And that again indicated, as did the arrival of Trump later, shortly after I forward the proposal, he won the presidency after all, even with a minority, that there were an immensely large proportion of our populations in two of the most stable uh, democracies in the world who are really, really unhappy with how their countries were being run, who are really, really unhappy with the elites in their country and were looking for somebody who would offer them something different. And what was even more frightening and disturbing to me, the somebodies they were fixing on, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, very different in many respects as our countries are, nonetheless shared one thing in common. They actually offered absolutely nothing concrete uh, um, that would help any of the people who put their faith in them. It was the most vacuous sort of populism. Now, that seemed to me directly present a crisis for our system. There was the repudiation of our elites and the core, the core of our, uh, our political establishment and the shifting towards support of these boobies, I felt they were, but nonetheless, obviously magnetically attractive ones. That I thought was a crisis. I put forward the proposal and nothing fundamentally since then has changed my assessment that that is a really big issue uh, and I think we can see it ongoing in American politics, ongoing in different ways in British politics, and we can see it in the politics of many other established democracies. In addition, of course, we see many major states backsliding from what we would think of as liberal democracy. Think of what's been happening in Brazil recently. Think of India, which is very disturbing to me. I'm very interested in India. Think of Turkey. Think of Mexico. Uh, where, where 20 years ago with ZDO, it looked like becoming a very stable Western-style democracy. Look at the widespread assumption that Marine Le Pen may be next become, become the next president of France. So I feel that the basic thesis that I started with, that there is something very troublesome going on in our democracies, is correct. But I also feel they have shown resilience, which is very encouraging. And I feel that we can, as it were, strike back against empty populism. And that's why I wrote the book. But I haven't changed the core concern that drove me to write it.
So your book is about the nexus between capitalism and democracy. And I thought I would focus maybe on the question of democracy first. You make an amazing statement. um, And I'm going to quote you. I find myself doubting whether the U.S. will still be a functioning democracy by the end of this decade. How that's a that's that's a stunner. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose it is. And I wanted to shock people. Um, (laughs) You did. (laughs) So so. I think people are very complacent. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not predicting that something terrible will happen. I don't know. But this is how I uh, have seen it. And to me, what happened at the end of the last presidential term was actually more worrying than uh, Donald Trump's original election. So here um, was a man who lost the presidency, without a doubt. And... Uh, who, first of all, refused to recognize the legitimacy of his successor. Do not underestimate the significance of that. The essential attribute of a democracy is that losers recognize the legitimacy of the people who defeat them because that is the core notion of the electoral part of democracy, that we accept that once you've lost power, you've lost power, you must go. Furthermore, a considerable effort, not well organized, because Donald Trump has never been well organized, but nonetheless, a considerable effort was made, without a doubt, to overturn the result. I don't think the January 6th insurrection was particularly important in that context. Too much is focused on that. I think it's a broader effort by him and many lawyers to get it overturned. That failed, thank God. But and then this is the third element, the Republican establishment essentially decided because the Republican base agreed with Trump in large measure that it was not a legitimate election. The majority of Republicans have consistently held the view that this was not a legitimate election because Donald Trump said so. The the Republican establishment basically decided to go along with the lie and this was shown in House votes. It was uh, on the acceptance of the results. It was shown, of course, uh, by the, the the failure to convict uh, Trump in what was clearly uh, uh, an insurrection um, in on the impeachment on the impeachment, and it was shown even more by the defenestration, as one might say, of the honest and honourable people like Liz Cheney, who I much respect, and similar people who who simply caught, said the obvious thing, that Trump had lost, and that as a proper Democratic Party, however much they hated it, they had to accept it. And by the way, that's still the situation today. The Republican Party have not behaved like a normal Democratic Party. This is absolutely clear. Now, then the question happens, what happens in future? Well, we don't know. First of all, we obviously don't know who will be the next presidential candidate for the Republicans, though Trump still looks quite likely to be to be that person. Um, and we don't know who will win. But let's suppose that the next president is a Republican and whoever it is then does what Trump should have done, but he didn't understand fully yet what I think of as dictatorship 101. What do you do? Well, you make sure that the people you appoint in the Department of Justice to run the FBI, to run the intelligence agencies, to run the Defense Department, 
are really your supporters. And by your supporters, I don't mean party supporters. I mean people loyal to you personally. You promote from within, not terribly difficult to do, people in those organizations who felt dissatisfied that they haven't been fully recognized for their virtues and are prepared basically to, to swear, or they don't have to swear it, to be utterly loyal to you personally in return for becoming the chief of the general staff or whatever it may be. You, you penetrate core institutions with your loyalists. By the way, the, uh, the internal revenue service is a crucial part of this always. Then you use these coercive apparatuses to go after, harass, victimize people who oppose you. It sounds uh, like China, it, Martin. It, it, it no, sounds it, like the CCP. It sounds like Hungary. It sounds <laughs> okay. like Hungary. It mm-hmm. sounds like Turkey. It is now. I don't doubt that there will be tremendous resistance in the judiciary to this. So, but it will no doubt appoint more judges, and it will be very interesting to see how that plays out. This is an internal coup, more rigorous and more carefully, more organised done than anything that Trump planned before. Now, you could say, and then comes the next election, and uh, after a lot of intimidation, a lot of um, of uh, use of this power machine, the election is even less fair than the, that one was, and the result is rigged. Now, again, that obviously involves a lot of what happens in the States, and America is difficult to organize. Um, but the fact that a party which has roughly half the seats in the Congress controls more than half of the states, and I think it's 26, but I can't remember the exact number, is basically adopted what I think of as a fundamentally anti-democratic plan is immensely destabilizing. And the assumption the system will survive is an optimistic one. That's all I want to say, and I hope to God <laughs> that I'm that I'm wrong. Well, I agree with you completely that 2024, that election will be pivotal in the United States. And it's going to be intriguing, intriguing to see what happens. But what I'm wondering is, you know, you talk about Larry Diamond's definition of democracy. It has elections, participation, protection of civil rights, the rule of law. But is our definition of democracy maybe big enough Um Is there something else that's gone wrong here, something else that's eroded? In the U.S., at least, I believe the failure of the state to protect jobs and property have led to some of the populism that you're you're describing. Now, the jobs that went to China, we have plenty of jobs now. That's not an issue. Factories here can't get enough people to work. But crime is an enormous issue. Personal safety. I'm, I'm sitting in downtown Chicago And the climate here, you mentioned 1968. It's very much 1968. And as our our, uh, election comes up next week, I think the person with the strongest law and order platform is going to win. So is there something else that people feel that they've lost trust in? I think this is a very interesting question, which I didn't address because at the time I started this, well, that wasn't such a big issue. The um, And it, I think this is a slight exaggeration. It's a more US-specific issue. I mean, there's a bit of this here now, a bit in Europe, 
um, but I don't get the sense that it's as big an issue uh, as it is in the US. Now, the, um, the here, because I haven't done a lot of work, I haven't been able to get some sense of what's going on here. I mean, my thesis would be that part of what is going on is, but I may be wrong on this, by the way, is that in an, uh, in an, in an economy with a very, very low minimum wages and a, um, an awful lot of people at the bottom for whom the choice between crime and actually good, honest work must be shifting towards crime. I regard the incentives incentives as relevant. Uh, the floor is very low in the US. A lot of people, the second thing is there's a lot of evidence on this. A lot of people are very poorly educated. Um, obviously, some are much more. So there must be a very large number of people sort of at the bottom were poorly educated, not qualified for anything but minimum wage jobs, uh, living in pretty poor circumstances, probably surrounded by crime themselves. And I don't find it very surprising that crime has a tendency to rise. Now, the, the U.S. approach to this, I think, historically has tended to be um, repressive. That's that. But I would have thought, but this is, of course, the wet European liberal talking, uh, that, you know, I've had these arguments with Americans. OK, you've got the largest prison population relative prison population relative to population in the Western world. In fact, I think it's just about the biggest in the world. Uh, so the incarceration rate in the United States is roughly this is very rough, five or six times the UK's. Okay, and you still have a crime problem. This would suggest to me, as an outsider, you've got a pretty big social problem. If you've got if you've got the best society in the world, as many Americans would tell me, why is it that you have to put six times as many people in prison compared to Britain, which, by the way, is not particularly low by European standards? And in order to feel, and even then, you don't feel safe. Uh, even that's not enough. Perhaps you've got to put far more in. Now, one of the problems, of course, is from my point of view, that you're completely insane gun force. Uh, uh, nobody outside the U.S. can understand the U.S. attitude to guns, which are obviously responsible for tens of thousands of dead every year. But in this case, what seems to me to be screaming at you is there something going on in American society which is creating a far, far bigger problem of criminality than you than is going on in roughly comparable Western societies with far, far weaker, uh, um, you know, far less repressive um, judicial systems and imprisonment. So uh, I understand that. It is a big concern. I understand there will be a call for putting more people in prison and longer sentences. But since you already have the longest sentences and the largest prison population relative to your population of any advanced country, that seems to me a dead end. And it reinforces, I suppose, I'm not an expert, I'm really, but it reinforces my sense that part of what has been going wrong in the US over the last 30 or 40 years 
is society is not delivering the outcomes Americans would want for themselves in multiple dimensions. And one of the reactions to that, economic and cultural and criminal, is to say, well, I don't want to discuss the complex causes of all this. I don't want to discuss why this happens in any detail. I just want a strong man to come along and smash it all and change it. <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, Trump is that guy. He's not going to worry about little things like the rule of law and what you're not allowed to do. He'll sort this out in a vigorous way. Maybe it's the sort of thing you see in Westerns with uh, sheriffs coming along and killing the baddies. I think that's a dead end, uh, a trap. Um, uh, but the, uh, I can perfectly see what you just described, and I hadn't focused on it so much, will be another reason why the next president is quite likely to be an impressive um, demagogic strongman, somebody who promises, like Trump, you know, trust in me. I don't have, really have a program, but I'm, my God, I'm going to sort this out by being brutal and direct. And the same, by the way, applies to China. So the other thing that is on offer, and it's now completely bipartisan, I mean, Biden and Trump have been outdoing each other in saying, well, the Chinese are responsible for pretty well all the problems in the world and we're going to beat them up. So that is a natural response to unhappiness, but it's not democratic. Well, part of it is threatens, part of it threatens democracy if they don't accept democratic governments, but part of it threatens basic global stability. Right. And yeah, that does, does worry me. And that's an important part of my book. Getting the balance right is a core idea of my book. And what you describe is another reason, actually, which I hadn't thought about for fearing that the balance will not be struck in the right way. Right. And, you know, here in Chicago, we have the strictest gun laws in the country. It doesn't seem to be an issue to, to help with what you're talking about. Our property taxes are also extremely high. And to put January 6th in a little more context, I think, is you have to look at what happened in major metropolitan areas in the United States the previous summer and the looting that went on, the rioting that went on. Um, it was very, uh, it, it struck fear in the hearts of people. But more importantly, it said... The law doesn't apply to a certain group of people. They're free to go, so maybe it doesn't apply to us either. So that was a really dangerous precedent, I think, that was was set in the summer, you know, before then. But uh, yeah, you're uh, you're right. I think that there's unhappiness that's not being addressed. So getting back to democracy, um, I'm sure you heard recently, and and also going on to China that Roald Dahl's books were boulderized. And um, and my youngest daughter, this brought her to tears that his books would have been interfered with. Do you think freedom of expression and thought is a prerequisite for economic growth and progress? And if so, how does this explain China? Um, no, I, I think the relationship is more complicated than that. Um, uh, how we define freedom of thought and expression and the, so the limits on that are a complicated, ongoing debate. And uh, I've learned things uh, in the process. Um, so I'm not going to get involved in 
can I define precisely what people are prepared to are entitled to say? Um, uh, the I mean, to take the Roald Dahl case, yeah, they are apparently going to buy that the Roald Dahl estate apparently has agreed to change some of the words in the book. But the old books all exist. You can all read them, uh, you know. And, of course, this is sort of the left. And then we've got uh, um, DeSantis and presumably other governors busily trying to prevent certain things from books being taught in school. So it's clearly both sides. And this does disturb me more than a little, uh, but I understand you know, there are things I don't particularly want to be taught. I, because of my own background, you might be coming back to this, I don't really know what I feel. Uh, well, take the subject of Holocaust denial and writing books about that disturbs me a great deal. I wouldn't make it illegal. I understand why the Germans have made it illegal. So this is quite complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is. But the, the basic principle, however, it, for me, goes something like this. A uh, um, prosperity, by and large, comes from a functioning market economy. I think we know that pretty well. And the market economy to function needs more or less adequate uh, enforcement of property rights. It doesn't have to be perfect. It needs uh, some degree of security of contract and so forth. Now, within the context of the Chinese system, as it operated between the late 70s and recent-ish, let's say, until perhaps the middle of the last decade, the authorities understood this need sufficiently. Uh, Above all, Deng Xiaoping understood this, and that was then permeated the bureaucracy sufficiently that and the potential for growth in China was so enormous and the capacity to exploit the um, entrepreneurship and knowledge of the rest of the world was so gigantic that they were able to generate in what was a very imperfect market economy by any standards, uh, but still uh, quite dramatic improvement on the predecessors, a colossal growth for about 40 years, which brought China from being one of the poorest countries in the history of the world to one of essentially upper middle income, but very far from being actually a high income country. That's a tremendous achievement. And it was driven by market forces within the context of a, of a government system that did enough to allow the market to work and did a superlative job, that is clear, of mobilizing resources and building infrastructure. No doubt, and that's something the Chinese have always been exceptional at, and they showed that. Now, the question, of course, is, is that undemocratic structure, that structure without the rule of law, because there really isn't any, you know, ultimately it depends on bureaucratic will, is that going to work for the next 30 years as China tries to become a fully developed country? It's a really fascinating question. The closest favorable pa- parallel to them will be Singapore. So Singapore has done that, but Singapore really does have the rule of law the bureaucracy is sufficiently constrained to recognize the importance of that. And that's because Singapore not only has a superlative common law tradition, if I may say, coming from the British Empire, but it also 
It also is a very small open economy and completely dependent on the confidence of the world's capital and trade in it. And they know it. But China isn't like that because it's too big, it's too complicated, and it can't be tough, tightened down, controlled in that in that way. So I believe what not only is going to happen, but is happening, is that the, the top-down bureaucracy is interfering to an ever-increasing and unpredictable extent with business. It is uh, making business people extremely nervous. Uh, it has uh, failed to make the transition, obvious transition, from the pre-2008 growth model to what is now needed. They've been talking about it, but they've not done it, which is a consumer-led growth model, which requires massive shifts in the distribution of income. They have solved the growth problem with what is simply the biggest, uh, biggest property boom in the history of the world, which is now coming to an end. And I would not be at all surprised, but I may be wrong, I really may be, that if we saw that over the next 10 years, or indeed already, that the underlying trend growth of the Chinese economy has slowed very, very sharply, to a bit faster, but not that much faster than that of the US. And that wonderful period, which you talked about, is coming to an coming to an end. So to come back to the big question, that says to me that having a democracy which is law governed, in which different points of view can be discussed and represented, in which there can be a debate about policy, in which there is a powerful independent structure of law, genuinely independent of the government executives, is in the long run, and the freedom that goes with that the political debate without freedom of expression, you can't have a vigorous political debate, even if it's not absolute freedom of expression. All these things are assets in the long run if you want to create a prosperous, free, reasonably secure uh, high-income country. And I don't think China has yet shown that it can do that. It reminds me of what you wrote about um, Danny Roddick's trilemma um, yes. in your book that you can have global economic integration, sovereignty and democracy, two out of three, but not all three. So it seems China does not have number three. <laughs> well, I say that you can have a bit of them all, but you have to have the bit of them all. And the here, this is where you know, I understand, by the way, why she emerged and why she's anti-corruption program happened, because I think the problem for China, in essence, this follows the work of Daron Achimolu, particularly, that the, basically what has happened is that the market economy, in all its triumph, also corroded and corrupted the party. And, and she was aware of that because it's lawless, lawless in the sense there's no law. So the way you got things done, to put it very brutally, is you co-opted or bribed the, the official system. And I'm not talking about the, the center. I mean, every province and city. And she was terrified of the consequences for the, the legitimacy of the Communist Party of this perception that it had become a completely corrupt racket. And he acted against that. In the process of acting against it, since he can't rely, because he's, after all, a dictator, he can't rely on a rule of law. He just cracked down and include on the process, he cracked down on business and all activities and people stopped deciding to do things. It got paralyzed. That's pretty clear. Now, that's their dilemma. 
in rectifying the problem created by the market economy in their system, which are very profound and corrupting the system, they basically ossify the system. And I think that's what they are doing. Now, what the optimistic view would have been that instead, 10, 12, 15 years ago, the Chinese started to institutionalize greater democracy within the party system, move towards a genuinely independent legal system. You could imagine that as a possible outcome in which the, you know, the Communist Party became a framework within which there was more open competition, perhaps with among factions, which could be called parties, and you move towards something more democratic. She represents absolutely the antithesis of this. He's decided he is trying to reimpose traditional order. But in the process of reimposing traditional order, I think he, we can see, and I think it's obvious, that he is ossifying the economy on which China depends. And we will see wh whether I'm right. But so in the long run, and I mean, agree, it's the long run, I do believe that our model is the best if we stick with it. I think that, you know, the issue of corruption in China and all other economies, really corruption is uh, a developmental issue. We think of it as a moral issue, which is a mistake. Uh, corruption is what people do when the institutions that are supposed to serve them do not work and that they they need a way to get things done. Um, it happens right in my own city, I have to tell you, <laughs> for, on a daily basis. But it's uh, that since the problem is really, it's been misdiagnosed, the problem is really weak institutions. The response to that should be building stronger institutions, not punishing individuals. That won't get to the root of it over time. Well, that is the same argument I made about crime. Mm -hmm. So corruption, like crime, is a symptom of social and institutional decay and disarray. And you won't solve it if you don't solve the decay and disarray. Exactly. And that, I think we agree completely. And uh, that's true for all societies. But it is worth remembering that the le by all measures, the least corrupt most, uh, uh, in the sense, most legitimate societies in the world are uh, high-income democracies. I'm afraid to say that the U.S. doesn't seem to be quite at the top of that list, but it is at least a good deal higher, a good deal higher than China. Exactly. At the top of, at the, top of the list, you get Denmark. If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and the Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. So uh, China, so I wanted to ask you about industrial policy. Um, the White House recently um, uh, proclaimed that we, the United States would have an industrial policy. China has a planned economy. Japan has an industrial policy. Do you think the United States and the UK, for that matter, need to follow that example? Do you think that's a way out of the, to untie the knot here? Well, I wrote a piece about this a week ago or so, yes. <laughs> uh, which I was quite pleased with. So my broad answer to this is something like this. I tried to do nuance, which is difficult, but it isn't simple. So uh, China and Japan have indeed both done industrial policy. Um, they have both, in, in my view, had a few successes, but also enormous failures. 
uh, Japan, we know about some of them because they were famous cases of the uh, uh, of the past uh, when they pushed, for example, I think one of these was high definition television. What's that? I think that was one of them. Bridges uh, to nowhere. <laughs> uh, well, that was that was that was macroeconomic de- spending to keep demand going more than industrial policy. Um, The basic point about the East Asians is that though I agree there was some government policy to push industry in certain directions, the the really great successes uh, had an enormous market-led, demand-led component. The truth was that the Koreans, the Taiwanese, the Japanese had a very, very competitive niche in the world because of the quality of their labor and the low, poli- low cost of their labor. They had an open world economy. They could pursue export-oriented growth, and they got a tremendous learning by doing benefit from doing export-oriented growth, and that generated new businesses or new units of existing businesses, which turned out to be stupendously competitive, like Samsung Electronics. And... Uh, that's basically what drove their growth. The government played a part, no doubt, the way the incentives were constructed, but it was basically actually incentives to get them to start exporting and that supported them in exporting and learning from being part of the world market. China did essentially the same thing. The overwhelming view that I hold is that if you look at China, the market economy businesses drove the growth government, however, did a superlative job of supporting them, creating the infrastructure for them. That's absolutely crucial, facilitating their integration into the world economy, facilitating and permitting their new their technological innovations. They did a superlative job also of educating the population. Very, very important. So you know, there's been a revolution in the number of Chinese people who go to university. 30 years ago, there were very few. Now it's an enormous. That's that's all government assistance. So, but in, the, the idea that Chinese, you know, the strong Chinese economies, companies of the day, of today, are the state-owned enterprises, and that was all created by the intervention of the Chinese government. It isn't true, as far as I can see. Well, look at India. With It, did, it lacked the infrastructure. That part was missing. Mm-hmm. They, uh, in India, it's certainly been the private sector that has played a dominant role, again, in the genuine growth. And some of it, like the, the IT sector, the government didn't expect at all. It was a, just a whacking great surprise. So I think the key thing remains to have the right environment, supportive infrastructure, supportive with education, uh, um, support for entrepreneurship. Support for science in universities and R and D and all the rest of it, and some help with early stage uh, activities, the risk stage, and creating clusters and uh, things like that. All this is good. Just what happened in Silicon Valley, for example. These things are good, but planned development, industrial policy, which really amounts to picking the winners. The evidence from the America and many other places doesn't work. Far and away, the most successful industrial policy intervention of the United States in the last half century has been DARPA. And the essence of DARPA is trial and error by brilliant people who are free to do it. That is not targeting particular sectors. You have no idea whether those particular sectors will work. Now, that brings you 
brings me to what I expect of the what is it, 269 billion of the the latest, the Inflation Reduction Act, and then there's the CHIP Act before that. Here there are two different aspects. Some of this is about security in the genuine sense that you know the semiconductors are clearly the most important, strategically important input probably nowadays in our economies. And being entirely dependent as we become of sophisticated semiconductors on Taiwan is problematic. Of course it is, even though we wish Taiwan well and we admire what they've done. So I understand very well the argument for becoming independent in that sector, even if the economic benefits are negative, just because it's security, it's in insurance. That's the argument. That's the argument. Mm -hmm. It's not a development policy. It's a security policy. That I understand. I accept that. I recognize it. It then becomes a question of how you do it at least cost, how you, you know, the details of it matter. Do you make it competitive? You need to, I think, and so forth. Now, then there is a separate thing in some areas. What the United States is trying to do is do environmental transformation, green revolution, as it were, through an industrial policy. Now, since the U.S. seems to have no other way of doing it, you're not going to agree on a carbon tax or gasoline taxes or any other sensible things. You are going to have to do it through subsidies. And it may be that these subsidies will be sufficient to achieve uh, both a real transformation of the carbon emissions intensity of U.S. output and Uh, some new industries which are competitive. I'm not at all sure the latter will emerge. I think it might turn out to be very difficult to do this uh, because even the U.S. doesn't have the volume to match, for example, solar production in China, uh, solar panel production in China. But I can sort of understand that. But then we get into the third element of this. So that's the green transformation. These are big strategic goals energy of self-sufficiency in chips and the green revolution. Will these proposals lead America to become uh, you know, the center of world battery production competitively, uh, uh, which and batteries are clearly an important new industry? Um, I'm there on that. I'm really skeptical. Uh, the Our experience by and large is that uh, shifting the production of modestly well-developed existing industries uh, when you're behind and when they're really quite not clear quite where they're going through government subsidies, it's very, very debatable. If you look back on history, DARPA shows that government can do wonderful things if it supports innovation. Now, I think the experience of the Second World War supports that, you know, Jet engines would not have become dominant, but it was a new technology, genuinely new technology, militarily important, which the British and the Americans supported made a, a huge difference. But these huge subsidies for exist, for things in technologies we can already identify, which aren't really new industries, just expanding old ones, I'm not convinced this will lead to long-term economic benefit and I will be surprised if 20 years from now, people look back on this and say, this was a really the birth of completely new dynamic industries we never had before. I, I really agree with you on that. And what 
adds to my pessimism about it is the Buy America, America First aspects of all of these programs. So we won't get the cheapest and the best. We'll get the just the cheapest and best that's made in America. And when it comes to components and innovation with other countries, that's not going to happen under this program. And I think that 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 limits it considerably. Well, come again, come back to very, very briefly. Of course, I basically believe in globalization and I think it's benefited us overall. I think we were terrible about ensuring the benefits were shared. That was a big problem. We didn't look at the regional and local problems created by this properly far too passive. But I agree with you. The US is balkanizing the world economy This will have bigger effects probably on other countries, including its own allies, than on itself. But the fact that it will affect its own allies who are highly trade dependent should concern the U.S. And I would be very surprised. You know, we're not in the 19th century anymore. The U.S. is not a laggard. Uh, It's a frontier economy and it's the biggest economy in the world. If industries aren't really doing well in America already, it suggests to me they're just not terribly competitive. And if they're not terribly competitive in America now, given the immense resources and skills available in America, it suggests to me that a bit of government support isn't going to make all the difference. You're not a laggard. You're not (laughs) a catch-up nation. You're not China of 2000. You're the US. It's just not likely, I think, that what the US government identifies as the future is going to be better than what the whole U.S. entrepreneurial class and capital markets identify. It just doesn't look plausible to me. Now, Martin, can you share with us what is ailing Britain? Was Brexit a, a, a lethal blow? Uh, you wrote recently that Britain should emulate uh, Singapore. Um, what, how do you see what's going on? Well, a lot of people are, are puzzled by what's happening in the U.K. right now. Well, this is a very good question, and it's not easy to give a simple answer. I give a very long answer to this in a podcast I did for Marcus Brunemeyer, well, video for Princeton. I think the, the truth is that several things have come together. Brexit is another stage in this, but, um, Britain has been a relatively declining economic power for a fairly long time. In fact, you can argue since about 1870, when the US and then Germany took the lead. After all, Britain was the first industrial power. I think its institutional structures, attitudes and values are profoundly affected by being the first industrial power. And in some ways, they never really fully modernized. I think aristocratic values have remained permanently very strong. The problem the old South had, but in a different way. Now, uh, so we look at the post-war period, um, we found uh, that uh, outside the EEC in the post-war period, our industry was not as competitive as that of Germany or Japan or in different ways America. And it declined pretty steadily. And we lost, by the early 80s, most of our old industry and industrial companies. Um, We then responded to that, and it was also exacerbated by the early Thatcher years, with a a big push in market liberalization and 
financial liberalization, and this drove us into the export of services and finance. And the financial sector became very big, particularly the international financial sector. And that was our comparative advantage, apparently. Industry was not very important. Uh, we imported most of the industry we had was inward FDI. Then we got hit by the financial crisis. And the financial crisis was particularly big for us in terms of longer-term economic effects because it damaged the financial sector, which had been such a big part of our prosperity. We also lost, for natural reasons, the oil sector, which had also been very important from the mid-70s to the early part of this century. So these, these sectors, which generated a lot of rent, became very, very weak. The manufacturing sector was very weak, very small, so it didn't really generate much. And we have been unable to find alternative activities, there are a few exceptions, which have driven growth in the economy as a whole. We're very, we're weak in the new economy. When we produce decent companies, they all get gobbled up by Americans, but they don't go global. That's being an open, anybody can buy our companies. Um, and the our stock market, which is important for various reasons, has become incredibly conservative and our companies have become, if you look at the companies in our stock market, they're basically um, uh, all, almost zombies. Zombies aren't adequate, but they are museum pieces, you know, BP and companies like that. So that's where we were in uh, after the financial crisis. The government made this worse with austerity, which killed off a lot of the growth, and it persuaded lots of businesses, no point in investing because there's not going to be any growth anyway. So what are you investing for? And then into this came the populist backlash, which is this is all terrible. We hate what the government's doing. We want something different. Ah, Brexit will solve the problem. Of course, Brexit made it worse because it meant that we lost our natural market and a lot of the trade we were doing it. He dethroned London as the commercial capital of Europe, not dramatically, but it knocked a lot of the growth out, further weakened growth. So over the last 15 years, as a result of all these things together, real household income, uh, disposable income has been almost stagnant. It's the longest period of such stagnation since, certainly since the 20s, possibly since the last century. Now, uh, so there is an immediate problem, which is, solving the EU relationship and getting as much of this as we can. But we, we're going to pay a price for Brexit. There's no doubt about it. Our role as in, you know, being integrated in the EU for Britain was very valuable. We had the really sweet deal in which we didn't have to be in the euro and all sorts of things, but we had access. We, that's a big cost. But the bigger problem is, and this is a contrast with the US, um, uh, even worse than many of the European countries, we're just not generating large-scale innovative businesses uh, on, at the rate which is needed to drive the economy forward. And nobody really knows quite what to do about this um, because it's, you know, declining old industrial countries like this is sort of a new phenomenon. Italy is in something like the same shape, but even worse. So one of the things that is really interesting in the world is we are seeing a number of old industrial countries that are losing their mojo. Um, and I would say if you look at the U.S. as a whole, and not, of course, there are some sectors which are dynamic. You look at productivity growth in the U.S., 
um, and look at it, you know, the long in the bigger term over the last twenty years, fifteen, twenty years. It's not great there either, but it's better. But it's better than in other developed countries. And I discuss this in my book. We are. Um, it looks as though the growth dynamic of our economies is weakening. And there are many reasons to dis- why this is so, and I won't go into that now because it will take too long, but it's clear perhaps because it's the first and oldest industrial country, um, uh, industrialized country, that this malaise, if it, uh, this lack of entrepreneurial vim and productivity enhancing investment is particularly severe in the UK. You know, I wonder, too, the effect of COVID on all of this. Was that a, a, just one more blow? That is very interesting. I was actually at one stage rather optimistic about the impact of COVID for two mm. reasons. First, it clearly gave a boost to life sciences, and our life sciences sector is a relatively good one. Uh, you know, after the US, you know, basically UK, Switzerland and Germany are probably the next the East Asians, interestingly, are really quite weak in this sector. And the uh, um, so that was encouraging. And I also thought this massive technological um, adoption of working from home, of being able to integrate businesses across the world through virtual interaction like this, would, would actually turn out to be massively productivity enhancing. But so far, at least the figures aren't showing it. Maybe that we're not measuring properly. But I thought that might turn out to be quite a big boom. And it may be in the sense that we are producing more with less cost because we're we're not traveling in the way we did. We're not commuting and we're not putting that that benefit as an as a, as a part of our productivity growth. But the COVID clearly was a blow, but I don't think it was decisive. The the impact of the war is also, the Ukraine war is also a huge blow, and it will also affect us. So the shocks are important, but the bigger point is that it looks over a longer period, and certainly since the financial crisis, that the underlying productivity dynamic of our economies is weakened. And I think it's because at core, there are a lot of the growth we were recording before the financial crisis, and I think that was true with the US and others, was basically converting the huge credit boom we had, global credit boom, into real GDP, which was actually an illusion. It was, uh, uh, if you like, converting credit growth into income, and credit growth is not income. Credit growth is credit growth. And it's easy to see how that could happen. And if we went back meticulously, we might realize actually we haven't been growing as, growing as quickly as we thought well before the financial crisis. I've recently had a conversation with uh, Robert Gordon and also Lauren Brandt. And the two of them came to the conclusion that really the boom, China created the illusion that it was the China and that has now ended the contribution of cheap labor and productivity gains that we had really were took place because of offshoring. But that that party is over um, at this point. That's certainly true. Uh, Robert's uh, book uh, on growth is enormously influential to me. I think it's a marvelous book. It's a masterpiece. Book. Yeah, masterpiece. I agree. Mm-hmm. And the uh, and actually shows many dimensions, but he doesn't pay as much 
attention to the financial sector as I do, but then I'm British and I, the financial sector is a very big relative to the economy, but I think it's a factor too. But I think the China uh, benefit was not insubstantial, though it's also created huge adjustment shocks for our societies. That's right. Now, you were a senior economist at the World Bank as a very young man um, when this credit boom un- actually was uh, begun. And now, because of the lack of cooperation, the lack of the what they call the common framework, emerging market debt is reaching crisis proportions. So we've been talking about the major industrial economies. What about the emerging markets? What are your concerns for that if we're not able to work out debt restructuring and so forth? Because COVID really uh, helped their debt levels skyrocket. And now interest rates are higher and the dollar is stronger. Yeah, my understanding of these figures, when I wrote about it quite recently, is that Low-income developing countries, are many, many, many of them are in terrible trouble. And they were encouraged or allowed or felt entitled to borrow a lot and uh, in easy times. Um, and we're talking countries in Africa, but obviously other small countries uh, around the world. And some bigger ones, um, to borrow a lot. This was reinforced dramatically by China's entry as a huge creditor. So look at Pakistan, look at Sri Lanka. It's a it's a dominant creditor. Uh, China had surplus savings and it decided to recycle them into uh, into um, countries that might become its satellites, I mean, there's no other word. I mean, it was a, a geopolitical and geoeconomic strategy, which has led to very serious debt problems. Many other emerging, big emerging countries, the bigger emerging countries, as far as I can see, like India or Brazil, um, are okay. But at least most people seem to feel these countries are not in serious debt difficulties now. And Nothing I've seen suggests they are. So it wouldn't then be the sort of shock that we saw when there was an Asian financial crisis, which affected some really big players. Obviously, China's not going to be brought down by any of this. It's a huge net creditor. The, um, so it's very important for development, really important, but not, it appears, really important for the world economy. It's an important distinction. Now, in terms of development, the really big difficulty is nowadays, it's, you know, in the old days, the mid-90s when we had um, the, the HIPIC initiative, uh, highly indebted poor country initiative, basically the creditors were official institutions and they were Western official institutions, you know, the, the World Bank institutions like that or the IMF. And you could deal with them easily because there were two institutions and the creditors were basically mattered with the US and the Europeans and they could agree, Japanese, that was it. Now, however, the creditors are quite different. Yes, there are these international institutions, but there are also a wide range of Chinese institutions, um, export credit institutions, for example, and there are lots of private creditors 
in web banks, but particularly bond funds, bondholders, and so forth. So there's far more creditors. They're far more diverse. And they're really difficult to bring together in one institutional framework. The old days of the Paris Club, which represented the, uh, the governments of Western countries, it just doesn't work anymore. So the, um, we have a very big problem, as you say, a, with a lot of countries. And some, as I said, are really big and important, like Pakistan right now, which is in negotiation right now. But coordinating the creditors is a huge problem. But of course, nobody wants to give up their claims or adjust their claims down merely to make the claims of people who are not making these sacrifices whole, to make them better. Now, you know, why would you give up your, if you're a private creditor, why would you want to give up your claims as a creditor on, let's say, Pakistan, I don't know how much there is relevant there, maybe not much, but on whatever country it is, in order to make the Chinese whole, you wouldn't want to do that. So this is creates a logjam, and we've been well known for a long time in bankruptcy, and this is a situation like that, that you need some way of forcing everybody to take a haircut in turn with some sort of seniority with, of course, the emergency lender, the IMF normally, and not taking a haircut because it's prepared to take the emergency risk. But that means cooperation. It means coordination. It means agreement. There is no institutional framework for that to happen as things are today. And, uh, and, uh, and that means I think it will be very, very much more difficult to come to a resolution of the problems of these countries um, than it has been in the past, and we desperately need a new institutional framework which covers all the creditors that allows debt problems when they emerge to be resolved relatively quickly. And that brings up a broader question. As globalization increased, why have all global institutions weakened? It seems that it should have been the opposite to, to take place. Well, I think there are two, there are two aspects to this, at least two, and surely many more. The key point when we were in the globalization heyday, uh, you know, up to 2008 or so, is that a lot of the new players were quite logically private players. Right? They weren't in these old institutions. We, you know, compared with when I was in the World Bank back in the 70s, in the, you know, that time, the World Bank was development finance, along with a few other development banks, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank. But you know, with a few exceptions, there were a few. Basically, private capital wasn't interested in going to lend to small, poor developing countries. It would have been seen as absurd. Uh, even India had very limited private capital flows, at least when I worked there in the 70s. Really limited. So the... Um, that was transformed. So the private sector got involved, and that was a logical extension of globalization. But the private sector can't be herded like the public sector. It's, you know, herding cats. And you have to, and you look at the problems they had just in dealing with the Argentine debt overhang from 2001. I mean, that shows how different it was. The second point is that the link to that is they never updated the institutions to deal with insolvency. Um, 
to take account of this private sector, uh, new private sector um, place role in the, in this. It was an attempt, some moderately successful, but it was very difficult to do. Then third, that's the second big issue, we've got this new player, it, again, as a result of globalization. We've got China. We've got a new superpower. And China is part of the system, but it's not part of the order, as it were. Uh, it, it, it has its own rules. And that, again, was part of the globalization. It was a success, but unfortunately, we didn't integrate it very, very successfully. By the way, the Americans will hate this, but it's actually true. If you look at the late 19th and early 20th century, up to the Great Depression, indeed up to 45, you could argue that the U.S., with its highly protectionist trade policy and its wildly unstable capital markets culminated the Great Depression, created even larger devastating effects on the world economy with, with absolutely no rules and constraints on what the U.S. did. Didn't accept any of them until after the Second World War. So I think what, what China's doing in this respect is very much echoes of the past. It's what rising superpowers do. And then finally, after the global financial crisis, globalization itself slowed and um, ever-increasing friction emerged between the US and China and the US and the Western China. So the coordination and cooperation became even more difficult. So it's basically, and in very much a way, both a product of success and the transformations caused by success and the difficulty of dealing with the downside of success in a way that doesn't blow up the world. And uh, I'm afraid we uh, have done a very poor job of both of these aspects of the globalization process. So, Martin, you dedicate the book to your grandchildren and casting your mind into the 22nd century. What does the world look like for them? What are your, your fears and your hopes? And what is the likelihood that it will be a wonderful world for them? So the 22nd century, I think to me, is unimaginable. Uh, I mean, this is uh, 77 years from now. Well, at 77 years from now, my youngest grandchild will, please God, be alive, but she will be 78 uh, and my oldest grandchild will be 92. Now, that's really hard for me to imagine. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, uh, the, um, I think that um, we're at a phase in human history in which an extraordinary wide range of outcomes are conceivable. So... Um, we have a real risk, I think, we cannot ignore it, of global thermonuclear war. We you know, you just can't pretend it doesn't exist. Just look what's going on. We have enough warheads in the world now, and we're going to make more to kill, as I understand it, in a fully-fledged war, about six billion people with a nuclear winter. Who knows what the climate transformation is going to mean? We don't know. Uh, it might be not so terrible. It might be utterly disastrous for large parts of the world. We really don't know. Um, 
and managing those things require a higher level of cooperation and wisdom in our political systems than we have normally shown. Uh, you know, that's the truth is, I've written this many times, we have created a world which requires us to behave as people and peoples, as nations, in a far wiser, more rational, less myopic, more tolerant way than we have historically ever been able to do. So uh, that's true in our political relationships, geopolitical relationships, and in our management of the global commons. And that means saying, oh, yeah, we don't like China terribly much, and we have lots of issues with China, but here are the five things we absolutely have to do together, and this is how we're going to do them, which is one of the things I dis many things I discuss in my book. Now, um, so there's a real bad side, and there's this stuff, this question of can we, can we cooperate. On the other side, then we get to the questions of the transformation of the economy, leave aside the geopolitics, we are at the beginning of obviously extraordinary uh, technological revolutions, of which the most important, I think, are in information technology, artificial intelligence, and life sciences. And it may be that these are completely transformative for humanity, that in the, over the next hundred years, our life expectancies the uh, relationship between incomes and life expectancy, already bad, will get much worse. The, uh, um, the artificial intelligence revolution will render substantial parts of our labor force, of our people, economically redundant, or if they are valuable, really a very limited value. So the economic transformations, both upside and downside, associated with our new technologies, which are so fundamental in their implications for who we are, are is to me just unimaginable, unthinkable. I don't know what it means to live in a world where so much of what human beings pride themselves on can be done fairly easily by machines. I've just no idea what this means, how we manage information, control information, and this then links, of course, to what sort of political system can we sustain? Can we sustain? Democracy was, in my view, the byproduct of an equalizing or at least opportunity-creating capitalist system. Will it continue to be that sort of system? In the recent past, it hasn't shown itself so good at that. And will that continue? So that's another huge uh, set of question. So the one thing I feel is we are in an era of huge risks, huge challenges, and simply monstrous uncertainties. And, uh, and so the answer to your question is I really, really don't know what the world is going to look like in 2100. Uh, uh, the but I hope it will exist. I hope it will be reasonably stable. I hope it will be reasonably prosperous and what the the prosperity be widely shared. I hope humanity will have matured to the point that they stop fighting about absolute nonsense and agree to differ because that's part of what we're going to do within countries and across them. 
In other words, I hope we grow up. But, uh, but, and I think this is the big point. I think we're going to have to grow up if we don't grow up, and I don't see much sign of it at the moment in either the West or in China, I think we're going to blow up the world. So that, in a way, the book is a paean to praise to democracy and capitalism, but it's equally as much a paean to, to stepping back, uh, a plea for stepping back and saying, what we're fighting about isn't important enough to blow up the world. It's, we've got to find a way of managing our societies internally and our relations with one another externally, which creates a better and more decent world. This was the great aspiration after the Second World War of leaders like uh, Roosevelt. And one of the reasons I sort of return to him in this book is because I think that's a great aspiration. And I don't think it's naive. I think it's naive to think that we can manage a traditional world of traditional international power relations among the current superpowers without risking complete destruction. And, you know, we ne- we didn't have a chance to get to demographics, which are obviously going to be, we do kind of know where we'll be absent a thermonuclear war too, but uh, what uh, absent machines taking over for that lack of people we're going to have to get used to a world of much slower growth. Yeah, that's true. Uh, than we've experienced in our lifetime, right? I'm a little <laughs> optimistic about that because I think people mm-hmm. can work much longer than people think they can. And I'm, you know, I'm 76 and I'm working full time. Look at like, us. <laughs> why can't we? Why can't I, no, I don't want people to do tedious jobs forever, and getting rid of that might be a good thing. But the, I think people are too pessimistic about how long people can work because they assume the work will continue to be hard labor. And the one thing that we really have achieved, uh, one of the reasons women have become so valuable in the market, um, is we don't need hard physical labor in the way we used to. And I think most people actually want to continue to do productive things, be economically engaged, not just sit at home and draw a pension. So I think we have to forget the idea of everybody retiring in their 60s. And as long as it's healthy life and the period of, you know, really unhealthy life doesn't get longer, and it seems it's not getting longer, it just starts later on the whole. And if particularly if we get a handle on dementia, which is our, the next really big challenge, I'm actually moderately optimistic and less, uh, you know, I don't think... Being able to get people to live longer is a catastrophe as long as we find a way of making them productive and part of society. And I don't see why that should be impossible. My mother is still working at the age of 90, Martin. Wow, so... well, that's an example for us all. <laughs> well, Henry Kissinger is still doing his stuff He's at the age of 99. There. So yeah. I think we are too pessimistic about that. And by the way, I think that's what the Chinese are going to have to do, whether they that's like right. it or not. And I think they'll be surprised by how well they can do many tasks. Uh, they're spry and fit in their 80s, uh, 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 one way or the other. Anyway, I think it's the only future. We mustn't be bound by that. I think that's a great idea. Martin Wolf, thank you for joining me today. I urge our listeners to do as I've done and spend a delightful weekend reading your book. It was very thought-provoking. Uh, the title of the book is The Crisis of Democratic capitalism. And thank you also to the people behind the scenes here at EconView. 
managing editor Ying Zan, and our producer, Sam Fu. If you'd like to subscribe to our newsletter as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, econview.com. Don't miss our new China report. And if you can, support us on Substack. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.